Father, we turn our eyes to you again tonight, and our prayer is simple. Your servant Paul told the Thessalonians that our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And Lord, from the bottom of our hearts, we pray that what happened among the Thessalonians would be our portion tonight. We ask that you would do it by your spirit. Let your presence come and touch us and renew us, heal us, convict us, save some. Only you can do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, meet me in your Bibles in 1 Kings chapter 4. 1 Kings chapter 4, beginning in verse 24. 1 Kings 4, verse 24 to 25. In speaking of Solomon, the Holy Spirit says, For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates from Tifsa to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates. And he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. Solomon's name simply means peace. It derives from the Hebrew word shalom. And it was a very fitting name because peace was a factor that distinguished Solomon's reign in comparison to all the other kings of Israel. Solomon had something very special about him. He did not fight wars like his father David did. Actually, he didn't know any wars at all. There was an unusual tranquility. There was an un unusual alliance and serenity with Solomon as he took over as the leader of the people of God. And as we just read in summary of this verse, this man was able to maintain decades, years upon years of harmony, civilly and internationally. That's impressive. That's significant. And we see here that there is no other king following Solomon who was ever able to replicate such peace in the land. And not only do we get a summary that there was safety among the people of Israel from border to border. That's what we read here. We also realize that there was something that each person who was under his establishment, what they enjoyed because of Solomon's leadership. It's this interesting phrase. You, you read it with me. It says, every man under his vine, in verse 25, and under his fig tree. Men and women did not have to hide in their homes. They did not have to be worried about any siege or any attack from outside. They were able to liberally be in their own personal gardens and enjoy the fruit and the shade found therein. And this was not just a one-time commentary about what Solomon was able to provide to the people of Israel. This became a proverbial expression, a proverbial expression that would describe enjoyment and rest and peace. And more significantly, it actually became a prophetic hope, a prophetic hope for the future generations of the people of God. And so even the prophets borrowed that 1 Kings 4.25 statement to give the people something to look forward to so when the son of David, the promised son of David, who would rule and reign forever and ever, they would long for that even more. They would have a scene of what they could expect. Here's proof of that. When you go to the prophet Micah in chapter 4 of Micah, in verse 3 and 4, this is a prophecy 
about Jesus Christ, not in his first advent, but when he returns, Jesus Christ is coming back. Understand that. The Lord Jesus Christ will return on this planet. And when he returns on this planet, he will plant his feet on the Mount of Olives. And when he does so, he will also establish his throne in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, and he will rule and reign the nations for 1,000 years. And so this is what we are looking forward to. We're not merely looking forward for Christ to take us up. We're looking forward to Christ coming down. And when he comes down, he is going to prove to all the governments, all the nations, all the peoples, for all generations that there's no king like him. And so here's a glimpse of that in the Old Testament of the second advent of Christ, of what you and I are expecting. And I'm among those who believe that he's coming very soon. Here it is in Micah 4, 3 to 4. I hope we have it ready. More importantly, have it ready in your Bible. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, meaning they're going to turn their weapons into farming equipment. There's going to be no war when he comes. And their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war. And can you imagine a period of hundreds upon hundreds of years where no war will happen? Look at the next verse. But they shall sit every man under his vine. And under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. So you see, the prophet, by the Spirit, borrows the language of 1 Kings, and he uses it for a future reality to come. And what we're told here about the Messiah is that he will settle disputes among the leaders of the world. And there will be a peace unlike any other time. And every single person will enjoy personal prosperity and security unmatched. Oh, here's not just Micah, here's Zechariah in Zechariah 3.10. Zechariah, another prophet, near the end of your Old Testament, we're told something in one simple verse that echoes what Micah is saying, that echoes what Solomon was saying. In that day, what day? When Christ comes. When he comes in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. And so this became a, an expression of anticipation, an expression of a desired daily reality that there will be mutual trust, that there will be a corporate harmony, that there would be this sense of security and love among people, no crime, no fear, no bad news. It will just be this, everyone having their own little personal utopia and that being the experience, whether you look west, east, north, or south, oh, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus. But you know what's fascinating is when you have this Old Testament background, it perhaps may add something. This is just a little nugget for you to enjoy, I hope, that it adds something perhaps to a, a very specific moment in the early phases of Jesus' ministry when he was recruiting his disciples. So let me show you that. If you want to turn with me to John chapter 1. And look here in John chapter 1, verse 45. John the Baptist is telling people, behold, the Lamb of God, he's here. He's in our midst. And now Jesus is beginning to draw his followers, namely his 12, that he wants to train to be apostles. And here's one of them, Philip. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So he, friends his, he finds his friend Nathanael. We, we, we found him, the one that's been promised. He's here. And look at the response of his friend in verse 46. We are told here, 
Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, I love Philip's neighbor, come and see. I'm not going to hear argue with you, come and see. Nathanael was praised. If you know this story, you know that he was praised by Jesus himself of being someone who had no deception in him. There was no guile in him. There was no trickery in him. What you see is what you got. And in, in a simplicity of heart, he spoke his mind. And you get proof of that right here. What good can come out of Nazareth? So this was not somebody who was two-faced. This is somebody who was transparent, somebody that you can trust, somebody that you didn't have to second guess concerning who he was in terms of his character. And we praise Nathaniel for that. Jesus praised him. We praise him. We long to emulate what Jesus praised. But unfortunately, many people have limited Nathaniel to that virtue alone. You know what you see here about Nathaniel? You know what I at least see here? Nathaniel was not just simply hearted. He was not just a person who was open. Nathaniel was a strong, serious seeker of God. I'll tell you why. Because Philip, when he came to the knowledge of Jesus Christ being the Messiah, he goes to Nathaniel. Now, you know this. When you have some good news, when you have something that you learned, you tend to go to people and you tend to make the phone call to those who will value what you have to say. Right? I hope you're not those who just tell people anything and they just, you know, they just trample on whatever you have to say, especially if it's spiritual things. So we have an idea here that Nathaniel was somebody who knew about the Messiah, somebody that just not only knew about the Messiah, but longed for the Messiah. He was, a, he was somebody who longed for the Messiah. And, and Philip knew to go to him, and he knew that Nathaniel would appreciate this news. That's a, that's a wonderful thing. And Jesus confirms, I believe, something further. It, it, it just solidifies that truth about Nathanael. Look what Christ says about it when finally Nathanael meets Jesus face to face in verse 47. We read here what happens. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Israel, that's an interesting word that's not often used in the New Testament, by the way. The word Israelite is not often used in the gospel accounts. But look what Nathanael says right after. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Uh, now a light bulb maybe went off, right? Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. I saw you. Now, many people have concluded from the story that what Jesus did was showcase his omniscience to demonstrate to Nathaniel, doubting Nathaniel, that he is indeed the Messiah, his nature is indeed more than human. He is divine. And that is true. He does showcase his all-knowing power. But out of all the details that Jesus Christ highlighted about Nathaniel, out of all the things he could have said, the one thing that he underscores is, I saw you sitting underneath that fig tree. I saw you sitting underneath that fig tree. Why is that even significant? Why is that important? Why was Nathaniel sitting underneath that fig tree? Well, the scriptures doesn't explicitly tell us. But when you look at Christ giving him this, Nathaniel answers in a certain way. In a moment, I'm going to show you that. But it makes you wonder concerning Nathaniel about his, his knowledge of the prophets. It makes you wonder if Nathaniel being a strong seeker is much stronger than you and I thought. Philip not just only found a friend who was, who was aware of the Messiah and his potential to arrive at any time, even in his lifetime. There was something about here, in this moment, revealing the depth of his faith. During Solomon's reign, what are we told? That people were sitting underneath their vine and their fig trees. 
Concerning the Messiah to come, what are we told? That they're going to enjoy the same when the son of David arrives. What is Nathaniel doing sitting underneath a fig tree? There's no liberty here. There's no peace. You have Roman oppression. You have spiritual corruption that has been unchallenged concerning man's greed and their man-made tradition. So for, for, for this man to sit beneath or underneath a fig tree doesn't reflect accurately the environment that he is in. You might disagree with me, but I, I think there's something here. I think that what Nathaniel is doing at this very spot was not lounging around mindlessly. I'm persuaded that Nathaniel here is contemplating and meditating of what it would be like if the Messiah came to clean up this mess. Here he's underneath this fig tree, and Jesus is not just revealing, I know where you are physically. Jesus is revealing, I know what's in your heart. I know what's in your heart. Here is a man here that's an Israelite, daydreaming perhaps about the kingdom to come. Could it be? Could it be? You're saying, I don't know. Well, look at Nathaniel's answer in verse 49 that might indicate. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are what? The king of Israel. You're the king. You're the king. Perhaps in that moment that as Jesus was interacting with Nathaniel, there was something deeper going on. There was, there was an awareness that Christ revealed about Nathaniel that awoke something in him. And if this is true, if what I'm presenting to you is a possibility, then what a glorious truth it is. Jesus Christ doesn't just know where you're sitting. Jesus Christ knows what's occupying in your heart. He knows what you yearn for. He knows what you desire. He knows your ambitions. He knows what your affections are set on. And when they are set on him, he takes note of it. He's aware of it. And that makes me excited to know that those aches of the soul, those prayers for Christ to be known, to be real, to come again, he's fully, fully aware of that. And that blesses me. I hope it blesses you. But we haven't, we haven't accomplished our goal here. Because if Jesus is greater than Solomon which what we're trying to accomplish and discover here, that what more does he have to offer if the prophecies of the Messiah to come in his rule are echoing what Solomon was able to give? So Solomon was able to give people the ability to sit underneath their vines and their fig trees, and here is Jesus who is going to do the same when he comes and rules and reigns forever and ever. That's wonderful. But what I want to propose to you today is that Jesus Christ, this morning you heard, is building a greater temple Additionally, Jesus Christ offers a better peace than Solomon. And that's what I want to persuade you in. The peace that Christ is able to offer surpasses whatever Solomon was able to give during those 40 years. And the peace that Jesus is able to give, you don't have to wait when he rules and reigns for a thousand years. You just have to let him rule your heart today. Amen. Christ being king is not a future reality. Christ is king right now and you either have him as your king or you're your enemy and his enemy that's all it is there's no neutrality there's no in between and i pray today that every person here would bow the knee to king jesus that's what my prayer and my desire is you're going to hear the gospel tonight we're going to hear the gospel tonight and even if there's one person in here who has not made jesus christ king you have an opportunity to do so in these very dark and trying times but let's talk about the peace of jesus 
You heard the summary verse in 1 Kings. I opened the service. The summary verse that from border to border there was peace in the land and there was security that every Israelite was able to enjoy. Is there a summary verse about the peace that King Jesus can offer? And I propose to you there is. Here's a summary verse, at least one among many, that communicates what Christ can do with peace. It's in 2 Thessalonians 3.16. Turn those Bibles there and highlight it and never forget it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 16, we are told what the Lord of peace can do. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace, look at the quality of this peace, at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. What kind of peace does Jesus Christ give? It's all-encompassing. What kind of peace does Jesus Christ give? It's unending. That is the peace that Jesus Christ gives. And this is what Paul is saying to these believers. God is able to secure in your soul an emotional, mental, spiritual serenity. Check this out. I know it sounds too good to be true, but it is true. Every second of every season that you walk through. That's not exaggeration. I'm just reading the Bible. I'm just giving you the verse. What does at all times in every way mean? Is this poetic license or is this true promise? I choose the latter. At all times in every way. And it is extremely fitting that Paul would write this promise, though it is applicable to all, he wrote this promise particularly to the Thessalonians. Again, you want revelation of the Bible? Ask one simple question. Why? Ask it a lot. Why? 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 And, and things will come. So here's my question. Why them? Why them? And guess what? You have the answers. Are you at 2 Thessalonians? No? Yes? Yes? You are there? Okay. 2 Thessalonians, go there with me. Go to chapter 1. Let's do this quickly here. 2 Thessalonians 1.4. There was something happening in every single chapter of 2 Thessalonians. There's three small chapters. Here's chapter 1, verse 4. Here's what the church is going through. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions... And in the afflictions that you are enduring. Number one, the church of this group of believers was enduring suffering outside. They were enduring persecution. They were enduring challenges, threats. And verse 5 tells us that they are suffering because of these persecutions. Something that we're not very familiar with. Suffering is not when you don't have a strong Wi-Fi signal. Okay, That's not suffering. That's suffering for Christians in America mostly. That's not what we're talking about. Real suffering. Like go to jail suffering for believing in Jesus Christ. Being stoned kind of suffering. Being separated from your family because you claim to believe in this Messiah that challenges all these other pantheons of gods. That's the kind of suffering. But you go to chapter 2 and you read something in verse 1 and 2. The suffering doesn't end there. As, that's enough. But no, there's even more. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not... To be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So now you have another degree of suffering. Not just people persecuting from the outside, but false teachers who are creeping inside. And they are harassing these pure-hearted believers, trying to convince them this faulty view of the last days that the Lord has already come and they're there and they missed out on the return of the Lord and they are shaken. They're shaken in mind. They're disturbed from within because false teaching can do that. It can rob you of your peace. There's a lot of people today who have no peace in their salvation because of false teaching. 
There are a lot of people today who are tormented, who have had all the joy sucked out of their walk with the Lord because of false teaching. And so you have here a spiritual suffering. You have a spiritual suffering where these people, these poor Christians who, who have been raised up by Paul are now being, are being harassed. You think that's enough? You think that's enough? You have persecution from outside. You have false teachers coming inside. Chapter 3. You go to chapter 3 and you read verse 11. And what do you read here? 2 Thessalonians 3.11. Here's what we're told. For we hear, Paul says, that some among you walk in idleness. Idleness is to cease from any useful activity. That's what it means to be an idle person. Among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. When people are not busy with good work, they become busy bodies. You know what a busy body is? Sounds weird, right? Busy body. It means to meddle in other people's affairs. Does that happen in churches or no? It happens a lot. Come, Lord Jesus. It happens too much. Busy bodies. One person said it cleverly, gossip is the fruit of idleness. But you know what I discovered? There's even busy people who still gossip. So that's like an extra evil. It's like if, 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 if fruitfulness is supposed to occupy you so you don't have time to do things that you're not supposed to do, how is it that you're so busy and you still are doing this stuff? That's like a, that's like a grace to be so evil. I just don't understand it. Walk in idleness, but busy at work. Not busy at work, but busy bodies. So not only do you have false teachers, you have troublemakers in the church. I want Christians slandering and talking. Did you see what you did? And now there's issues within the church, and the pastors have to sit down with everybody and figure out what's going on, that kind of stuff. So let's, let's bring it all together. You have persecution. You have suffering. You have false teachers. You have people who are Christians who are creating problems in the church. From all sides, problems outside, problems inside, spiritual suffering, social suffering, relational suffering, Suffering. You're swimming in suffering, Thessalonians. And how does Paul sign off on the letter? Now may God deliver you from every single affliction, and may you never know any kind of pain ever. He doesn't write that. What does he say? Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. You see how context makes everything so beautiful? After all the problems that they're enduring, Paul says... I'm praying and asking, not that these things would go away, but that you would stand firm. And that you would know a stability and an unshakable confidence in the goodness of God, despite these challenging circumstances that are washing over you like a raging current. That's the kind of peace that Jesus gives. Why is it better than the peace that Solomon gives because as much as sitting underneath your vine and fig tree is a wonderful proverbial expression of a national time of enjoyment and prosperity, it is only produced and only possible through what Solomon was able to do. What did Solomon do? He was a political genius. It, that kind of thing was only because the economics were in their favor. It was surface level. But the moment those things disappeared... That reality of sitting underneath the vine tree was no longer a reality. It was stripped from them. The peace that Christ gives is not dependent on those things. It's a reality despised, whether they are reality or not. And I know, I know that sounds like Christianese. We all know that, right? I, I know that this is very familiar to us, but peace at all times in every way? 
That's our inheritance when Christ is king. That's what he bestows upon his subjects, his servants, his friends, his children. I want it. I don't want to just quote it in a sermon. I don't want to just give it to a counseling. I want it for myself. And Paul here is not giving wishful thinking here. He's giving even more than just a theological truth. He is giving a truth from personal testimony. Paul was something else. Would you agree with me? And as great as Paul was, Christ towers over him. It's a great study to see how Christ even makes Paul look small, as big of a giant as he was. But still Paul, arguably the greatest Christian who ever lived. This man, every time I read the book of Acts, I feel small. I feel small. Especially when you come near the end of the book of Acts. I mean, this guy gets battered and bruised, tossed and thrown, and you don't get a peep out of him. You, don't, you, you, you can't squeeze murmuring out of the guy, no matter how much he's crushed. Nothing. And as I was preparing this, thinking, like, Paul is writing here from experience. Yes, by the Spirit, primarily, more importantly, this is supernatural divine revelation. But Paul can say, I know what it's like to have peace at all times in every way. Paul's a real person. Let me give you one example. Among many, many portraits of how this man was absolutely dominated by this kind of peace. In Acts 28, Paul gets stranded on an island. Not with his friends but with a bunch of strangers who were prisoners on their way to Rome. Paul was numbered among these prisoners. The false Jews there who were giving accusation concerning Paul brought him to the point where he wanted to appeal to Caesar concerning his case. And so they put him on a ship and they they launch him over there to Rome and, and there was a detour. Storm breaks out, a horrific storm. There was darkness for several days and eventually the ship was steered off course and they crash And they land on an island called Malta. And here's Paul, drenched, drained, exhausted. And in Acts 28, verse 2, this is what you read between Paul and those 200 and something prisoners showing up on the shore. And the native people here showed us unusual kindness for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. So just imagine, pause. It's okay to imagine it. Here's Paul. You were just flipped over into the ocean. You found your way over to this random bank, and now it's raining and it's cold. Raining and cold. That's enough for people not to go to church on Sunday. It's raining and it's cold, right? Here's Paul. He's on an island. He's already soaked, and he's soaked on top of it. What does Paul do? Look at this in verse 3. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks, Paul, what are you doing? And put them on the fire. Here you have a man, after all he went through, and he still wants to serve. He already proved this point that he, though he wasn't the official captain, was really the captain of that ship. If you read that account, he's giving directions. Like, I told you guys, you guys were wrong. Now, that, this is why we're in this mess. You didn't listen to me earlier. So Paul, Paul had already won the admiration of many of these people. And here's this man who's now on this island. And out of all the people, Paul is highlighted for his humble service. He looks around and he finds these sticks. Hopefully they're dry so that he can feed the fire. And as he is picking up these sticks, camouflaged in the bunch is a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. Okay, this has got to be the breaking point. This has to be the breaking point, right? You've been to trial after trial. You were in chains. You had people saying false things about you. You were beaten and bruised. 
You're put on a ship. You're sent over with a bunch of prisoners. You endured a time where people did not even eat because it was so horrific. There was no sunlight. There was no guidance. Imagine, imagine being in the middle of the ocean with no sense of direction. After all of that, here now they come into this random island. Paul wants to go to Rome. He wants to preach the gospel to Caesar and all those officials. And here he is now on an unfamiliar terrain with random people, a bunch of criminals, and he still wants to do good. He still wants to reflect selfless sacrifice. And as he's doing it, a snake plunges its, its venom into his hand. What do you do when you suffer when you're doing good? Notice the viper didn't attack anybody else, just Paul, just Paul. Out of all the hundreds of people that that viper could have latched, it had to be the most righteous man on that island. Serving God does not exempt you from suffering. Serving God does not exempt you not just from one time suffering, but from perpetual, consistent challenges and trials. I don't know what kind of Christianity you bought into, but get back to the biblical Christianity and understand that Paul said in Acts 14 that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Many tribulations, not some. So Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks. He, he put them on the fire. Viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. And now this man has a dangling snake on his hand. What do you expect him to do? Well, let's read on and see what happens in verse 4. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, just imagine that sight. Clothes ripped up, skin shriveled up from the salt water. It's cold, it's raining. Here's Paul with a snake dangling from his hand. They said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. So here's how they interpret it. Perhaps the native people learned very early on that all these men that just showed up on our island were in fact criminals. Perhaps the Roman leaders who were governing that ship told them, you know, we got a bunch of criminals here. So they understood who they're dealing with here. And so Paul was a nice guy, nice enough to help out. But they understood because of the snake dangling from his hand, oh yeah, he must surely be a murderer. He must surely be a criminal. And they had this understanding of divine retribution. You do evil, evil comes to you. And that's how many people believe and understand how life works, even in the relationship with God. Do good, only good will come. Do bad, bad things happen. That's Job's friend's theology. That's the whole problem with Job's friends. Job, the only reason why you're suffering to this extent is because you have sin. Cough it up and repent. Cough it up. You can't be suffering like this if you're a true follower of God. You must have done something along the way. Just admit it and we can move on and God will bless you. Job's like, you're not getting it. I've walked to my conscience and my knowledge, I've walked right with him. So it's this faulty view, this skewed view of how God allows things to happen into our lives. And these, these native people had no different theology than Job's friends, and many even, unfortunately, today. Well, let me, let me stop here and, and just make this point. They were wrong in how they interpreted this event in Paul's life. But were they entirely wrong? No doubt this man is a murderer. Was Paul a murderer? He was a murderer. He was a murderer. He approved of the death of Stephen. He ripped families apart who named the name of Christ. They weren't wrong in their assessment of who Paul was in his past. Where they were wrong is that though Paul was a murderer, he was a forgiven murderer. That's the difference. And when you are a forgiven sinner, 
this concept and this illusion of karma is destroyed by the blood of Jesus Christ. It doesn't apply to you. So yes, he is a murderer, but he's a forgiven murderer. Big difference. And look how Paul, look how Paul responds in verse 5. It's so amazing to see this man in one simple verse. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. He just shook it off. So it comes on his hand. Oh, he's a murderer. Look, justice has come after him. And here's Paul. And shook it off into the fire and just went on to feed the flames with the sticks again. No fist with snake hanging off of it raised up to heaven. No enough is enough, God. Uh, how much more do I need to sacrifice for you? And this is what I have to, this is my portion, this is my plot. I'm a man, how much can I endure? I'm over this. I'm going to sit right there on the end of the island, and when you're ready to make this thing work out for me, I'm ready to serve you. None of that. He shook off the snake, and revival broke out on that island. What was his secret? How does a man able to absorb so much and yet remain at peace? Would you like to know? Because there's an answer. Something happened many, many, many chapters ago in the book of Acts that anchored Paul to endure all that he would up to the end of the book of Acts. Before all of this really started, before it really took a downward spiral, Paul was in prison and his fate was being determined Supposedly, from a human standpoint, from the officials, God had already determined his destiny. And, and Paul, while he's in the barracks, is waiting. Jesus appears to him. And when Jesus appears to him, Jesus tells him something. And that is the secret to Paul's peace. That is why he can endure the storm. That is why he can endure the snakes. That is why he can endure the slander. He can endure all of that because of Acts 23 Verse 11. Acts 23, 11 is the secret to this man's peace at all times in every way. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Do you catch it? Jesus told Paul, Paul, you're going to Rome you're going to go to Rome. And Paul believed the word of Jesus. So when the ship lost its course, when the snake inserted its poison in his veins, you know what I believe was going in the back of Paul's mind? I'm going to Rome. Jesus told me I'm going to Rome. Nothing will stop me from going to Rome. Nothing. Because Jesus said it. So here I am delayed in life, right? I'm on Malta when I'm supposed to be in Rome by now. But Jesus said I'm going to Rome. So I'm going to Rome. Here's this life-threatening attack. But Jesus told me I'm going to I'm not dying because he says you must testify also in Rome. I'm going there. Oh, what would happen to our peace if we really believed the Bible? Oh, what would happen to us if we really, really believed the word of God? You'd be amazed to know how even with ministers, when things get really tough, they don't believe the Bible, even the Bible that they preach week after week after week. Believe him. 
What did Paul say in 2 Thessalonians 3.16? That the Lord of peace himself. I'm going to end with that. I won't go there. But let me give you another example. This is, this is unplanned, but I think it's helpful. This is just another example of what happens when the Lord is in your life. When you have the Lord Jesus standing by you, though you perceive it or not. There's an interesting story. It's one, it's one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament concerning the miraculous. And where else would you go concerning the miracles of God? You can go to Moses. You can argue for that. But Elisha had just a highlight reel of miracle after miracle, even more than Elijah. Some people debate and argue that Elisha had double the miracles than Elijah because he asked for a double portion of Elijah's anointing. So Elisha, at one point in 2 Kings chapter 6, is in a specific place. And I want you to turn there. Turn there with me in 2 Kings chapter 6. And he's there with his servant, his unnamed servant in 2 Kings. And in 2 Kings, we read something in verse 15. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. Imagine waking up to that. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So here's the servant of Elisha, and he goes, There's two of us, and there's hundreds and thousands of our enemies surrounding our home. Boss, what do we do? May the Lord of peace himself give you peace in all ways and every time. What does Elisha say to his servant? He says in the next verse, he said, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. The servant is thinking, what are you saying? There's you and me. What are you alluding to? And here's what true men of God do for people who can't see what they see. The next verse tells us. In verse 17, maybe we froze. And you go to 2 Kings 17. This is why you have to have a copy of God's word. Because technology sometimes fails you. Then Elisha prayed and said, Oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. Please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man. Older generation. Pray for the younger generation. What did Moses do for Joshua while Joshua was fighting the battles? Moses, symbolizing the older generation, had his hands up while the young one was fighting battles with the Amalekites. Intercede for this young. It's very easy to complain about Gen Z, but we have to pray for them. Oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man. And he saw, and behold, imagine this, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around, not the city, not the house, around two, Elisha. So just imagine, here's Elisha, and from Elisha, all the way expanding to the mountains were these chariots of fire. And here's this young man, wow. It's a special story, but you know what makes it more special? The details that we tend to overlook. Does anybody know? I know we have trivia tonight, but here's another trivia question. Does anybody know the specific location by name where this miracle took place? And some are looking down at your Bibles, which is smart. Go to verse 13, if you please would. 
And he said, go see where he is. This is before this, the, the army surrounded Elisha and his servant, that I may send him and seize him. It was told him, behold, he is in where? Dothan. He's in Dothan. Dothan. That is where the vision of these chariots of fire surrounded this one servant of God. Saying, what's significant about Dothan? Here's what's significant. It's only mentioned in one other place in all of the Hebrew scriptures. Dothan is only mentioned in one other place in all of the Bible. And I'm not going to tell you where it is. I'm going to tell you to turn your Bible there. In Genesis 37 is where we were told at first about Dothan. And this is the second and last time that Dothan is mentioned. In Genesis 37, let's begin in verse 15. Joseph was summoned by his father to go search for his brothers who were shepherds to check up on them. So he goes to check up on them because he's told that they are in Shechem. So he arrives there and he's looking around Shechem and he can't find his brothers. He can't find his brothers. And so a man, this is one of my favorite examples of God's providence in our lives. A man, unnamed, unknown, found him wandering in the fields. And this man asked him, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? Pause there. He's going to tell him, what he's looking for, and the man is going to give him directions to his brothers. Do you realize that if this man had not asked him where his brothers were, Joseph could have avoided all that trouble? <laughs> Do you realize that everything in Joseph's life, you can argue, hinged on this man? There are no accidents in the Christian life. No accidents. Not one accident. Do you know what security you live with when you realize that? Yeah, the flat tire wasn't an accident. When the, the job didn't come through and you called several different places and none of them answered back, that's not an accident. You prayerfully, even in your singleness, though it might feel like an affliction, it's not an accident. It's not an accident. God doesn't toy around with us. He doesn't put the world into motion and from time to time see people come to know Him, say, you're my child, now get back in there and figure it out. That's not how God works. There's not one accident in your life if you follow Jesus Christ. A man found him wandering in the fields. And if this man had not asked him, Joseph could have went right back home and said, Dad, I didn't find him. And he could have enjoyed his nice, colorful robe, but he would have missed the call of God. The man asked him, what are you seeking? Here's how Joseph answers. I'm seeking my brothers. He said, tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. You must have seen him. There's, there's many of them. And he gives him what he believes to be the right answer in Genesis 37, verse 17. And the man said, they have gone away. For I heard them say, let us go to? Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. That's the only other place where Dothan is mentioned in the Bible. What happens to Joseph at Dothan? He's taken by his brothers and he is thrown into a pit like a trapped animal. And after a short period of time, he's sold into slavery, and you know the rest of the story. So with two instances where you see Dothan mentioned in the Bible, two things happen. In Elisha's case, in Dothan, he was ambushed by his enemies. In Joseph's case, in Dothan, he was, he was abandoned by his family. 
And I believe with all of my heart that this simple reference of Dothan and two situations where two different servants of God were surrounded, the same reality that Elisha enjoyed was the same protection that Joseph knew in Dothan. Elisha was surrounded by the presence of God's faithfulness and goodness. Is it any less true for Joseph and Dothan? No, it was just as much true. He said, prove it. I can prove it. Because in Psalm 105, verse 17, we are told he sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, to go into Egypt. Who's he? God. You say that man gave him the directions. Yeah, but God was the one who sent him. You're saying, but he was sold into slavery. Yeah, but God was the one who sent Joseph. You're saying, yeah, but he was thrown into a pit and, and he, he was made to believe that he died and his father believed that he, he ceased to exist. Yeah, but God sent Joseph. God was the master planner. And he used those agents and those actors and even the evil of jealous, envious men to fulfill the will of God, to preserve the family of Jacob so that in the end the Messiah would be able to usher in and come through the seed of Father Abraham. Joseph was just as surrounded in Dothan as Elisha was in Dothan. For the Lord was with him, because when he sends you, he goes with you. And I love that story about Elisha. Because the servant's eyes open, he goes, wow, they're everywhere. And when you continue in 2 Kings, you realize that those chariots of fire, they didn't really do anything. They didn't attack the armies surrounding Elisha. They, they were just stationary. They were there. They seemed almost irrelevant because Elisha goes on to pray, Lord, strike them with blindness, and he does some merciful thing leading them to a banquet instead of to their slaughter. But all Elisha and his servant needed was the knowledge of the presence of God. God didn't even directly intervene. All God did was open their eyes to the truth. There's more for us than there is against us. That's all Elisha needed. The acknowledgement and the awareness that the Lord is here with me. He may not have, but he's aware. He may not, he may not turn the situation around. He may not provide a supernatural intervention, but all I need to comfort my soul is the knowledge that he's here. He knows. He sees. That's all you need. So I end with that summary of the peace that Solomon was not able to give. In 2 Thessalonians 3.16, may the Lord of peace himself Give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. The Lord be with you all. The Lord be with you all. Here's what I take from this. This peace that was delivered unto you through the word of God, that level of peace is impossible without the Lord of peace. So here's what I want to say to you, because I'm going to speak to two different groups of people in closing. You can't have peace from the Lord unless you first have peace with the Lord. Do you have peace with God? Do you have a settled relationship with the Lord? 
You can't have peace from the Lord until you first have peace with the Lord. Are you saved? Are you saved? Because Christ is the means by which we have peace with God. This Friday night, I want to ask you a simple question. In your heart of hearts, down deep inside, do you know that you know that you know that you're right with God? Do you know? I'm not asking what an evangelist in your local church or that event that you went to many years ago signed in your Bible and said on this day. I'm not asking that. I'm asking, does your heart testify, I have peace with God? You will not have any peace with God unless first you receive his son. Unless first you bow your knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. I know your mom did. That's great. I know your dad did. That's wonderful. Salvation is not a family package, though. You have to make a choice at one time, consciously. Jesus Christ is my Lord. Jesus Christ is my Savior. Jesus Christ is the only one who can wash me and forgive me of my sins. Have you done that? Have you with your mouth confessed that he is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Have you, whether in a meeting or in your bedroom, bowed your knee to him and said, Lord, I surrender my life to you? Have you done that? Because if you have not done that, you will not know this peace. You will not know this peace in this life, and you will surely not know peace for all of eternity. You know, I was thinking about this the other day. And sometimes these thoughts come at night, and they keep me up at night. I was thinking about eternity. Eternity. Think about it. Never-ending existence. Never-ending existence. Scripture says that eternity is written on our hearts. There is a desire for immortality, right? We want to live on forever. There's, there's something seriously wrong with a person when they want to cease to live. We, even our body reflexes in a way. You blink. Your body protects your life because you want to continue to live on. And there is a life to come where you will never, ever, 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 ever die. Ever. And there's only two locations where that eternity will be experienced. This is, I present this to you because I, I, I've had somebody tell me this many years ago. You shouldn't try to scare people to get saved. So what does Jude say? Snatch others with fear. Snatch them. Some people need to be snatched. They need to be awakened up. You've been to a thousand meetings, and you're still not saved, man. You've been to a thousand meetings like this, and you're still going to get up and go about your way, and you're not even confident that you have peace with God? What's wrong with you? How do you go to bed at night? How do you get up and laugh with your friends not knowing that your soul is in the hand of God? How? How? You will enter into eternity. You will. And either you will hear from Christ, enter into the joy of your master, well done, good and faithful servant, or depart from me, I never knew you. And guess what? There's no second chances. That's it. You will be sealed in a fate where there is no prayer hard enough that you can pray. There is no scream louder that you can scream. It's settled. You've heard about him. 
He's been offered to you, and yet you still have swatted away his salvation over and over and over again. Do you have peace with God? Have you, have you settled where your soul is going to go? You've planned where you're going to go to school. You've planned where you're going to go on vacation. You've planned how many kids you're going to have. You've planned where you're going to live. You plan your business investment, and you haven't thought a thought about your eternity. Not one thought, where I'm going to go when I die. And I'm trying to convey to you, I know it's intense now. It's okay. Intensity is good. I want to convey to you that Christ and his love is calling for you. And he wants to save you. He's not indifferent. He freely loves you. He's not under compulsion by the Father to rescue sinners. He longs. I lay down my life. No one takes it up from me. I lay it down. I want to lay down my life. I want to die. I want to get on that cross so that I can save sinners. I love them. They were created in my image. I want to rescue them, and I want them to be in my bosom forever and ever. That's Jesus' heart. He wants to save you. And he wants you to have peace with God. He wants you to never worry one moment after you confess Christ about where you're going to spend eternity. Not one moment. He wants you to ever doubt that if you stand before God, whether you will be accepted or not. He will accept you. That is how much God the Father loves the Son and through the Son loves you. Receive Jesus Christ and realize, as my brother said earlier, that you have sin from head to toe. You are polluted with evil, and there is only one way by which you can be washed, cleansed, every record around, every perversion that would make you blush if you shared it even with your closest friend, even such sin God knows about, and he is willing to forgive. He's willing to forgive. The thing that embarrasses you, the thing that keeps you up at night, the thing that makes you even cringe physically because you thought, how did I go so far into that depravity? Even such a sin, Christ is willing to forgive. He's willing to receive and wash gladly. But you have to come to him. You have to be humble. You have to be desperate. Oh, be desperate tonight. Be desperate enough to forget anybody behind you, in front of you, beside you, and say, oh, I'm going to even bow my knees before Christ. Say, Lord, wash me. Please forgive me. I want to be born again. I, want, I need peace with God. I need peace with God. He's willing to give it. Peace with God. And not just peace for all eternity, but peace from that moment on. Walk with God. Like Joseph, knowing that even when the most closest people to you betray you, he stands by you. Peace with God, that as you're serving him, there's enemies, as we're seeing rise up in America, enemies against the gospel truth. No matter how much we might be squeezed with our freedoms, no matter what's coming down the pike, no matter what we're going to see happen to local churches, oh, there is more for us than more against us. That kind of peace is available only when the Lord himself is received. I invite you today to repent of your sins and to crown Jesus Christ as Lord, to beg him to forgive you, to ask him and to confess that he's the only way into the Father's arms, and he'll do it tonight. You'll leave here changed. Your eyes will be opened. I remember what it was like to be born again. Believers, do you remember when you were born again? Yes, do you remember what it was like? Yes. I'm going to talk to you tomorrow about the reports that Queen Sheba heard concerning Solomon. And those reports 
so moved her heart. She said, I gotta find out about Solomon myself. Aren't you bothered, unbeliever, by the joy that the people you know who are Christians have that you don't have? Isn't it this thing? You're like, I want that. Don't, isn't that a part of, of what a Christian does in a person's life? We elude we that peace and that joy that should cause people to thirst because we're salt? I hope so. It can be yours. It can be yours today, tonight. You can be changed. And even though you've heard this every single year and you've left the same, why, why not tonight? It'd be different. Now, believer, peace. You have peace. You're his. You belong to him. The Father is yours. You're accepted in the beloved. But may the Lord of peace himself, he's speaking to Christians. At all times in every way, I'm sure all of us in here can say, I, I can't say that that is my Christian experience. And if we can humbly confess that before the Lord, here's what I want. I'm not saying this to condemn anybody. I'm actually saying this to excite us. No matter what our experience is, no matter what your personality is, your quirks are, the high-level anxiety that you have that's abnormal in comparison to the next person, this is your inheritance in Jesus Christ. That's your, that's your inheritance. That's what... King Jesus gives to his servants something that King Solomon could not. King Solomon could not calm the conscience. King Solomon can only offer the peace as long as everything he did was in favor for the people. King Jesus, on the other hand, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three can still say, but you can be at peace. That strength, that peace that protects your joy, that keeps you anchored. How do we get that peace? How do we stay in that peace? Well, that's whole another sermon on its own, but there's a hint from this very verse. What is Paul doing? He's praying this peace to be real in the believer's lives. Now may the Lord, I'm asking the Lord to do this in you. And so I even invite you tonight, I wanna to be very specific. You're here, you've made time to be in the presence of God's people, but we're not here just to listen to lessons. We're here to meet with God. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. What was the purpose of the temple? For God's people and God himself to come as close as possible to meeting with one another. And so when we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, every single time we gather, we gather, despite the singing, despite the praying, despite the, that's all wonderful, but those are all means for one chief end, and that is to meet with God. Meet with God. I want to invite you today, as a blood-bought child of God, to bring the matter that you don't have peace with to him. You're unsettled, you're disturbed, you're frustrated, you're angry, you have no security, you have no hope, it's keeping you up at night, it's causing arguments, it's causing friction, it's causing you to doubt, it's causing you to regret, it's causing you to kick yourself, whatever the means is, whatever the reason is, Bring it to the Lord tonight. I need peace here. My marriage, Lord, is killing me. I need peace in my marriage. I'm in my singleness, Lord, and it's been a long time. I need peace here. Give me peace. Even if I remain this way, give me peace. Even if my spouse doesn't change, give me peace. I'm afraid, Lord, of how to raise my children. I don't know how I'm going to provide for them, Lord. I'm anxious, I'm trying to be strong in front of my wife. Give me peace, Lord. 
Lord, I'm serving you in the ministry, and there's troublemakers in the church. There's false teachers that are coming. There are people outside that are threatening me. There are even believers causing all these issues. Lord, give me peace. Help me have this peace so that I can do what you've called me to do with joy and happiness and integrity. Give me this peace. Will he not do it? Spurgeon said many things, and he says things unlike really many other preachers can. He has the power to breathe peace into the heart, to create peace in the soul, and lull the spirit into that sweet sleep of the beloved, which is the peculiar gift of heaven. I will give you rest, said he, and he can and will do it. He'll breathe the peace into your heart. So really, I think everybody has a call here to answer. Non-believer, man, how many more signs do you need in our world for you to get it? We're not a random planet floating in the blackness of space. I know there's a lot of talks about aliens. We're willing to believe that, but not Jesus. It's incredible. This is not random. God created one world to be inhabited by man. I know they're going to try really hard to make that a reality in Mars and on the moon or wherever they're trying to go, but God created one world to be inhabited by man. And this world is not an accident. This world is perfectly described by the word of God. Your existence the commentary of all the chaos and the problems, all the evil, it's this book that gives the precise diagnosis and gives us the solution. Jesus Christ is real. He's alive. He came once. He fulfilled many hundreds of prophecies. What makes you think that he's not going to fulfill the rest of them? He's going to. I want you to be ready when he comes. He will. And I want you to be ready to stand before Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who died, was buried, rose again, and will come back to be the ruling king forever and ever. Are you right with him? How do I get right with him? Go to the cross. Run to the cross. Where's the cross? It's the truth of the cross. Bring your sins, bring all your burdens, and bring them to the Lord, saying, Lord, the preacher said that I can bring all my sins, because your word says you're willing to forgive all. Can you forgive me? You'll be forgiven. Lord, I want you to be king of my life. I don't want you to be king when you come and I'm not ready. I want you to be king now so that when you come, I have joy. So be king now of my life. Do that tonight. Believer, what is it in your heart that has weighed you down? It's robbing you of your testimony. It's not helping you sing. You're even distracted now while I'm preaching. Because you're so overcome by a sorrow, by harassment, by a thorn. Come to the Lord tonight. I know we have a program tonight. You know what's the best program? Meeting with God. That's the best program. It's the best program. And I just, it, it, I can't, I, I, I know that there's order in service. I'm all for that, right? But there are meetings that call for a response, that call for an answer. You hear all this and to just dash it away is just, well, that was really stimulating. That's it. I, 
God, please hear me. I want this supernatural truth in my life. But this place can turn into a Nazareth real quickly. Jesus could not do many things in Nazareth. He was, he was amazed at their unbelief. You know, I read an interesting verse in 1 Corinthians. I'm done here. There is a place in a public meeting. <clears throat> there is a place in a public meeting. Public meeting is for the corporate expression of worship, fellowship, all those things. But there is a place in the public meeting for you to talk to God alone. Can I show a scripture for that? I read this other day, and it just made me glad. It's in 1 Corinthians 14, 28. Look, I'm proving it to you. I'm done after this. 1 Corinthians 14, thank you, brother. 1 Corinthians 14, 28. This is speaking about the gift of tongues and how that works in the church. I'm sure you would love for us to talk about tongues right now. We're not going to talk about tongues. But look at the principle here. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let him speak to himself and to God. The idea there is that in some moments, though it's a particular context, there is a place for you and God. You and God. I want that for you now, tonight. You and God. Don't worry about what's coming up next. You know how this conference goes. Nobody's sleeping tonight anyway. Nobody is. Meet with God. Are you at peace with God? Let me put it this way. Even if you're a believer, hey, hey, hey. You're faithfully walking with the Lord, but something's disturbing. I'm not even talking about that kind of believer now. I'm talking about you, believer. You walked away from God. You're backslidden. You're icy cold. You've been here the past two days, day and a half. I lost track of it. And nothing has moved you. Not one thing. And you're content in that place. Not one thing has wooed your heart to say, isn't the Lord amazing? You haven't even talked about God this whole time. And you're a Christian. And you're dry as a stick. Though you have justification, practically, you're not right with God. That needs to change. And let this conference be the opportunity for you to change. Like, here's the goodness of God. It's that I believe, but help my unbelief. Here's the man with his child. Jesus says, anything's possible for those who believe. And here's this man, just it spills out like something hit him in the gut. He goes, I believe, but help my unbelief. It's weird, Lord. I do believe, but I kind of don't. And the Lord still heals his son. You can come the way you are, but based on this simple invitation, you're willing to act on that little truth, and God is still willing to honor your humility and touch you and rescue you from the place that you're in right now it's been too long, man. It's been too long. And you've gotten used to the rhythm of just going through the motions, but your soul is shriveled up. And you knew a time when there was a fire in your belly. And there was a time where you just couldn't help but sing his praises and talk of his goodness. And those are just, those are just memories now. Why? We go from glory to glory, not from boring to boring. All to say, I'm not going to give you any more scenarios. All to say is, can we meet with the Lord tonight? Can we just say, Lord, please, I need peace. Lord, I need peace with God. 
Lord, I need you to do something with my heart because I know I'm not walking right with you and it's been a few months now and I know it's only going to get worse. You need to rescue me now tonight, Lord. Why don't we do that? And let's see what the Holy Spirit will do. Would you bow your hearts? Would you bow your heads with me? And can the musicians come and, and just assist us in our attention to the Lord? Now may the Lord of peace himself, now may the Lord of peace himself, thank you, give you peace at all times and in every way. At all times and in every way. Oh Lord, you know exactly where each of us are at. You know who doesn't have the peace of salvation. You know who doesn't have the peace of of your promises and we ask that as Paul prayed for a supernatural impartation of this all-encompassing unending peace may you breathe that peace into our hearts Father we cannot force or manipulate anything we cannot do anything for people's lives to change but we do do our best in positioning ourselves for you to touch us. And so at this time, whether we sit or kneel or stand, lift our hands or bow our heads, Lord, we just ask that you would look upon our hearts and that you would help us, help us trust that you are a greater king and that you give a better peace than even Solomon did. For those who don't yearn for you like Nathaniel yearned for you, renew that yearning for you. Help us know the joy and security of being in right place with you. And we look to you now as we seek your face. Amen. The musicians will will play softly. not to manipulate your emotions, but <clears throat> to assist the truths that we heard and to help us meditate. Maybe you need to pray with someone, and I want to be one of those people to pray with you. And so, as I often do, I'll be standing in the back somewhere there, and I'm more than willing to pray. Pastor Mark, who opens and who has been opening the services, Pastor Mark, also a servant of the Lord, is willing to pray with you. You've seen him every service, so you know how he looks and where he is. You can just approach him. I'm sure that's fine, Pastor Mark. He will be more than willing to. Maybe you came with a brother, a, a friend. Maybe you, there's a believer that you know beside. You can pray with him, but let's just seek the Lord in his, in his presence as the temple of the Holy Spirit. The veil has been torn. The veil has been torn. We don't go to a building now. You are that building. Your heart is his home. Where you are right now, you can meet with him. You can meet with the Lord. Just in quietness. If you need to get up for any reason, if you need to go, we're not holding you hostage. All I ask is that you don't disturb because there's something powerful when we pray. There's something powerful when we pause and we say, God, I'm here to meet with you. Please don't interfere with that. You're going to laugh and throw frisbees until one in the morning after this. But for now, just meet with the living God. As they do this and as you pray, we'll, we'll continue with singing in a moment. But I'm back there. Please, I know that sometimes people want to share their hearts. But for the sake, if there's more than one person, to just 
let's go straight to the matter and pray about it so that others can have a chance to be prayed over as well. Seek the Lord and his face. Seek his strength continually.